0: guys welcome to pass the power with me Paige Parker probably like you I have been curious about successful people all of my life with this podcast I hope to talk with accomplished folks offering a bit of their backstory but mostly allowing them to share pearls of wisdom personally and professionally and perhaps a few secrets on how to live life fully and with passion in order to pass the power on to you. I'm super excited to be here with y'all for our first official Pass the Power podcast. Today, I welcome Professor Tommy Koh, a lawyer, professor, writer, trusted diplomat. And I wanted Professor Koh, our leading guest, to pass on the power because he's an intellectual, a social change maker, and an interesting human being. Professor Koh, is there any soundbite you'd like to add to that?
1: My wife would say that I'm a rolling stone (laughs) that's gathered little moss. No, I've had a wonderful life and career and journey, you know. So I'm a very happy 83-year-old.
0: Fabulous, fabulous. Well, you mentioned your wife, and I wanted to tell the listeners when I originally <laughs> asked you, you wrote me back and you said, I need to ask my wife. And then you came back and we had a little bit of a conversation, <laughs> and, and she relented, and you agreed. <laughs> and I think there are not many men who would be willing to admit to seeking approval from their wives. And after reading your essay <laughs> on your mother in the Tommyco Reader, I wonder if the respect you show to your wife was learned as a youth and if it's something that you deem that inclusion is essential for a good marriage.
1: My mother was a woman ahead of her time. Maybe the fact that she came from Shanghai partly explained, you know, her personality as independent, assertive woman. So she was a feminist and she taught her three sons to respect women. It's a good lesson I learned from my mother. Because it served me well in my marriage. Uh, my wife had a stronger personality than I do, so I uh, jokingly call her my boss. But I usually consult her because I don't want to do anything that would make her unhappy.
0: You know. I love that. That's so nice. You don't hear that enough these days.
1: So my first agenda is to make my wife a happy woman.
0: I always tell people when they get married, a happy life is a happy wife.
1: Happy wife is a happy life.
0: So over the last nine months with the circuit breaker and more isolation than we've ever known, no travel and bad consequences for many businesses and individuals, <clears throat> have you had silver linings?
1: Oh yeah, many. I would say, you know, I'll count all my silver linings. Uh, number one, because of the partial closure of the country and economy, I had more time to work. I actually worked very hard this last year and produced three new books. Briefly, there are one 50 Secrets of Singapore Sector.
0: Which I have here on set. <laughs>
1: and second, a book on ASEAN and the European Union, because for three years, Singapore is the coordinator of ASEAN-EU relations. And there wasn't a good book in the market, so I wanted to make a contribution. And the third book, which was launched in December by Prime Minister Lee, was a book of 50 essays by Singaporean on India. Hmm. And this is in response to uh, a very good Indian friend who came to see me last year and said to me, Kami, it's time you write a book about India. And I said to this good friend, I said, Chandrajit, your country is too complicated. I don't think I have the knowledge and ability to write a book about India, but I will think about editing a book about India. So I did that. So every book of mine has a story behind it, you know. The book, 50 Secrets, has a very interesting story. I owe 50 Secrets to Mexico and to Finland. Let me explain. In 2019, 28 Mexican students visited Singapore on a study trip, and before they returned to Guanajuato, where they came from, the Mexican embassy asked whether I could meet them for an hour. They asked me because I was Singapore's first ambassador to Mexico, you know, and I love Mexico. I said, yes, happy to meet them. We had a very wonderful hour together, at the end of which one of the students asked me, so Prof, What's the secret of Singapore success? I said, it's not one secret, but many secrets. So she said, please write a book about it. I said, no, no, it's too difficult. Sometimes circumstances combine, encourage you to do something. So soon after that, I hosted a farewell for the ambassador of Finland who was leaving Singapore. And she gave me as a farewell present a book from Finland, the title of which is 100 Social Innovation from Finland. You know, So I brought the book home, read it over a weekend, and I told my wife, hey, if Finland can do a book on 100 social innovations, maybe I'll edit a book on 50 secrets of Singapore success.
0: And I, I imagine it was difficult to call it down to 50 because there were probably many other people yeah. and ideas so, and things.
1: So my, my friend said, why not 100? I said, no, I, I wanted the book to be compact, to be user-friendly, and I thought 50 was a good number. There were two challenges. One, I had to sit down and think, what are the 50 most important success stories? And second, to find 50 friends who would each write one essay for me for no money and very short time frame, not three months. But I got the book done in six months.
0: I enjoyed it very much. And like I said before, I enjoyed the entry on water because yes. it's something that we just take for granted. And it's.
1: And that's a good essay on toilets, on sanitation, yes. by Mr. Toilet himself, <laughs> you know.
0: I know education is supremely important to you. So can you tell us about growing up? Did your parents push you? Have you always been driven to learn?
1: It's part of the sort of East Asian culture that education is highly valued, you know. It could have been Confucius or maybe some other reason, but you look at East Asia, whether China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, education is highly valued.
0: We'll be right back after the quick break.
1: the devotion to education cuts across social classes. Even working-class parents attach importance to education, which is very important, you know. Without that, social mobility would be difficult, you know. So my parents encouraged all three of us to study. In those days, life wasn't so competitive and there were no such thing as private tutors, you know. We study on our own and I guess the different children are motivated in different ways. My lack of success at the beginning of my career in a Chinese school, I think, partly spurred me to work harder and smarter Mm -hmm. because I come from a Chinese-educated family. And after the war, my parents sent me to the neighborhood primary school in China. I rebelled against the system, you know, because in those days, the method of teaching in Chinese school was what they call mercy, which is that you memorize the text every day you go to school the next day, you write it all out, just regurgitate the whole thing. And there was no such thing as questioning the text, asking the teacher a question. And that school was particularly strict. So if you give a wrong answer, the teacher will you, you know. <laughs> and I also rebelled against corporal punishment. So I didn't do so well. And after a few years, my parents thought this wouldn't do. If this boy is not doing well in the Chinese stream, maybe we should send him to the English stream. That's how... Whereas my two younger brothers continued the Chinese stream all the way,
0: and so then you went on to
1: first I went to two primary school. In those days, there was a cultural gap between the English stream and the Chinese stream. Since I came from the Chinese stream, no government primary school would take me. So I wanted to go to Utram, which was the neighborhood school. And the principal, who was a very kind person, told my father that send him to a mission school first and let him prove himself. If he passes the next year, I'll take him. So I went to St. Joseph Institution, I think for B2 or B3. And, you know, from somebody coming from uh, the Chinese stream, it was a double culture shock. You, know? you go from a Chinese-speaking environment to a completely English environment, go from a secular school to a Catholic school, where it was compulsory to learn catechism, you know. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, I passed and did well, and then I transferred to Uttram And then from Utram I got to R.I. You know?
0: Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about, because I know that you had first-class honors at University of Malaya, which is now in US, the law school. You have a master's in law as a Fulbright scholar at Harvard. You did a postgraduate diploma in criminology at Cambridge. And I wonder, in 2021, with the intense competition that the young people are facing, they have to be beyond extraordinary to get into these schools now. Is it still important to gain entry into these top schools? Or are they, as some say, a little bit overrated and too expensive?
1: All these elite universities uh, do provide a good education. And, you know, they suffer from the merit of high brand equity, you know. And unfortunately, we live in a very brand conscious world. So if you're applying for your first job, if you have a degree from Harvard, that helps. If you have a degree from Cambridge, that helps, you know. But after your first job, people don't really care. You know, they look at your performance. Can you perform lot? That's more important than your pedigree, you know. But we live in a very brain-conscious world, you know.
0: So for young people to be able to go to the best school that they can get into, that's what it's we do. It's
1: still advantageous. Yeah. But not a guarantee of success in right. your career or in your life.
0: Absolutely. Uh, when you look at the top Fortune 500 companies in the world, they are not headed by people who went to the fanciest schools. So, like you say, it, it doesn't mean you're going to do well. So I've also read your thoughts on the fourth revolution. and where we need to educate our young people in both the sciences and the humanities. Mm -hmm. And there's such a focus now on STEM because technology is transforming our lives. So can you share with our listeners why the humanities are also important?
1: So I'm not saying anything against the emphasis and priority being given to STEM. You know, I've got nothing against science, technology, mathematics and so on. I think, but what the world needs, technologists who understand the humanities, and humanists who understand technology. I was invited to deliver the annual humanities lectures for the schools, which I did a couple of years ago. And in preparation for the lecture, I did a lot of research and homework. And I found to my surprise that, you know, most of the people who have made a transformative change in technology, whether it's Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg and a few others, did not study technology, mathematics and so on, you know. I mean, in fact, it's funny that when I read a story of Steve Jobs, he dropped out of college after one year. And when he delivered a commencement address, I think at Stanford, he said the most important course in college was a course in calligraphy. Yeah, And the reason is because of this knowledge in art, in calligraphy, it enabled him to design a keyboard for Macintosh, which was superior to any other existing keyboard, you know. And if you look at Mark Zuckerberg, what did he study at Harvard? He studied sociology, you know. And Steve Jobs always say at the launch of products that Apple is not just about technology. Apple is about technology, it's about psychology, it's about the art, you know. So what we need is to produce people who are able to cut across the silos, you know, and have a more holistic view of, of knowledge. And just importantly, to develop soft skills, I would say.
0: Well, I find my daughter's going through the local school system. People defer to STEM, I think, because they're looking for job security. And so that's a difficult one to change when you have parents really pushing children to take triple science. So as a diplomat, you spent much of your life working in service of Singapore, dating back to 1968, the year I was born. And when you were posted as permanent representative to the UN in New York, had foreign service been a personal goal? And how did it all come to be?
1: I always say that most of the happy milestones in my life came by accident. My going to Harvard was an accident. My becoming a diplomat was an accident. I mean, I guess Singapore leader never dreamt that we would one day become independent. All their hopes, their dreams were heaped upon the vision that Singapore must become part of a larger Malaya, you know. So when we were asked to leave in '65, it was a shock to them. And because we never prepared for independence, we're no foreign service. So in the first few years, independent uh, leaders look around Singapore to see whether they can find anybody willing to serve abroad, you know. And I guess they fingered me because um, a long time ago, when I was a law student, I don't know, I developed an interest in international affairs when we were just a colony. And I helped to found the Singapore Institute of International Affairs of which, as you know, Simon Day is the chairman. So I founded the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. I had been an intern at the UN in 1964. At least had some exposure to the UN. So when they called me up, I said, I'm not qualified, you know, to be an ambassador. I was only 30 years old. I have no diplomatic experience. So the government said, well, nobody else has, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> at least you work at the UN as an intern. And then you have founded the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. So, so I said, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best.
0: More on past the Power after the break. So, how did Harvard happen? Yeah. I mean, I. (laughs) You said you lucked into that too. Because, you know,
1: as a British colony, all of us were looking to Britain. So, the natural progression was get a degree here, go to Britain to do your Master or PhD, you know? And when I finished my final year exam in 1961, one of my external examiners was a well-known professor in London University, Professor Gauss, and he called me up and said, Tommy, what do you intend to do? I said, well, I would like to go to Oxford, or Cambridge and do an advanced degree, you know? And Professor Gauss said, don't do that. So I was a bit taken aback, said, why not? He said, the education here and the education in Britain is so similar, you wouldn't learn very much as new. And it was he who said, go to Harvard Law School, you know. So I was taken aback. I said, but we don't recognize American degrees, you know. You see, it doesn't matter. You already have one degree that's recognized for practice. And he said, I've just spent a year teaching at Harvard Law School as a visiting professor. I will write to the dean of Harvard Law School, invite you to study Harvard. And I thought, gee, that's not going to happen. But I got a letter from Dean Griswold, to say, why don't you come to Harvard Law School and I give you Harvard Fellowship, Fulbright Scholarship. So
0: Wow, that's so too, fantastic. Too
1: good a deal to refuse. That's so fantastic. I, so I convinced my parents that, please allow me to go to America.
0: And then you ultimately went to Cambridge after that, so you satisfied all of the boxes. So when you look back to the UN, where you served as Permanent Representative, Ambassador to the US, Special Envoy to the UN, and now Ambassador-at-Large, what were the most meaningful takeaways, professionally, personally? Were they cultural, intellectual?
1: Wow. <laughs> that's a big question. Yeah. Maybe I should disaggregate that and say.
0: Because I know it's a great amount of time,
1: but the Singapore government wanted me to go to the UN to make friends to gain legitimacy. Because when Singapore was born, there was some skepticism about whether uh, Singapore truly independent. Was this some kind of neo-colonial plot? You know. So my first mission that the government gave me was to ensure that we are accepted by the community and nation as an independent, sovereign country. It was easily accomplished. I mean, when I arrived in the UN, everybody welcomed me. You know? Then my second mission is learn about the world and learn about how the UN system works and to make as many friends as possible for Singapore. As Singapore grows older, we became more ambitious. I would say that one of the great satisfactions I draw from my many, many years of working at the UN, for the UN, is to make the world a safer place for small countries. The founding of the UN, the adoption of the Charter, were important legal landmarks that gave a better prospect to small countries to survive, to be secure, you know. Before the UN was founded, small countries had very precarious lives, you know. Some of them were just incorporated by bigger countries or they're divided up and traded. So the founding of the UN, the adoption of the Charter, was a very important landmark event for small countries. And uh, in this respect, in 1992, 29 years ago, Singapore took the initiative at the UN to found a forum of small states for a country whose population is below 10 million.
0: How many are there?
1: In year one, we had 16 members. But today, the Forum of Small States has 108 members, more than a majority of the UN membership. Mm -hmm. And we are a very considerable voting bloc, you know, 108 countries. It's a significant bloc. And by uniting, it amplifies our voice, gives us greater leverage. So that's a very important achievement. I would say that I was very privileged that the UN entrusted to me to chair two major UN conferences, the Conference on the Law of the Sea, Mm which produced an important treaty, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and the Earth Summit in 1992, you know. Those are two important conferences that I had the privilege of chairing, you know.
0: I read about the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and it was signed by 196 countries. And I wonder, I'm sure it remains important to you, but why is that important to the average person?
1: Because the average person's life would be impoverished if there were no international trade. All our economy thrived on trade, of goods, of services, of transfer technology, and so on, you know?
0: Yeah, with the pandemic, and, 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 we and, and saw uh, our <laughs> supply chains break down.
1: Except shipping. Shipping did not break down, you know? So the world survived in spite of COVID-19 because international shipping continued. And so the supply of goods, especially essential goods, medical support, was not interrupted, you know? So over 90% of international trade is seaborne trade, you see? So to have a code of international rule governing shipping is of importance to not just country, but to people.
0: I wonder if we should be more conscious of our environment and if Singapore is doing enough, in your opinion.
1: This is another happy accident. Huh? In 1990, I was coming back from Washington. And unexpectedly, two of my colleagues and good friends, Kishon Babubani, who was then the permanent secretary of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, And Professor Chan Neng Chi, who was then our ambassador to the UN, contacted me and said, Tommy, the UN is beginning a process of preparing for the second UN Conference on the Environment in two years' time, 1992, you know? And the original plan was that the person to chair this preparatory committee would be from Sweden, a developed country. But this plan was aborted because the Secretary-General appointed a Canadian to be Secretary-General of the Conference. So as a result, the developing countries said, the Chairman of the Committee must be from a developing country. And Kishon Heiji asked me, since you chaired the UN Conference on the Law of the Sea, chairing this should be a piece of cake, you know? And I foolishly said, okay, I'll do it, not realising that it wasn't a piece of cake at all. It was because the environment had become so politicised, you know, that we couldn't even agree on an agenda, you know? So when I became chairman in in 1990, the first meeting in New York was in March, April. Every comma, every full stop was debated over. There was so little trust between the competing groups of countries, especially between the developed countries and developing countries, you know. And on the final day, there was still no agreed agenda. So I decided this wouldn't do, you know. So I decided that I need to put pressure on everybody. And I told the conference we will meet morning, afternoon, and night until we have an agreement. So most delegates didn't take me seriously. They thought the chairman just bluffing us. You know. But we went on into the night. You know. And I think at about 2 3 a.m., all the troublemakers were exhausted and they asked for the an adjournment and they said, OK, chairman, um, we are ready to agree. Why don't you, chairman, offer us a consensus text? Because they were exhausted, they were ready to agree. I had no trouble getting my proposal accepted. But we ended early in the morning. So it was a very long night. I chaired this meeting all through the night, you know, until the morning. I was younger then and I had the energy to chair an all-night meeting and keep my sense of humour not get angry.
0: So are we doing enough now?
1: I think we're doing more and more. But not enough. Not enough. We really messed up the planet. Not just climate change. We are going through what the scientists call the sixth mass extinction of the species. Unlike the previous five, this mass extinction of the species is caused by humanity. So we've messed up the climate, we're killing our biodiversity at an unsustainable rate, and we've messed up the oceans.
0: Before we proceed, let's take a quick break. So is it something that you think everyone listening, I mean, we have to be conscious of it every single day?
1: It's very hard to convince people to take ownership, you know. Climate change seems so remote, you know. They say, we're okay, you know. And anyway, it's the government's business. So I'm constantly urging my friends, my family, my associate, please set your thermostat 25 degrees. So I get very upset every morning when I go to... Tangling cups swim to find a thermostat set at 18 degrees. You
0: know? So how <laughs> it's convince, crazy?
1: How do you convince Singaporeans that hey, the little things we do have an impact on the climate, you know?
0: We set at twenty five at my house. Yeah,
1: but very few Singaporeans do. So the big challenge is to not only convince people intellectually, I think many people are convinced but to take ownership.
0: Actions have consequences. So when we read the newspapers, there seems to be a tolerance of intolerance that's growing around the world. And do we have to defend tolerant society?
1: I think the world is in better shape than the media lead us to believe. I think that on the whole, the world is more peaceful, more tolerant than it's ever been before. But we must watch out because I think there's a minority trend, you know, Towards uh, nativism, towards populism, towards intolerance, towards racism. I would even use the word racism. But I would say it's a minority phenomenon. When I look at the impact of COVID-19 on Singapore, I'm actually very encouraged by how, in the midst of adversity, so many kind-hearted Singaporeans took personal initiative, you know, to help poorer people, help the foreign workers to, you know, bring food to the hungry, you know, just so many kind deeds, you know.
0: I guess the problem is that that minority is often the most vocal, and so maybe we get lost in that noise.
1: My response to that is that the moderates must become militant. So I often describe myself as a militant moderate. I will fight the extremists. I will fight those that advocate intolerance, racism, or nativism, and I will not allow them to have the moral high ground. You know, So if the majority remains silent, Remain intimidated. Of course, the minority will prevail, you know. So it's up to us, majority, to stand up for what we believe and to counter this minority.
0: I agree. Very well said. So you're known for being a man who kind of has a lack of airs. You have a common man attitude, and you pull for the underdog. Maybe a little bit like you're talking about there. Why is it important to you?
1: I don't know. I think some people are born idealistic. Some are born pragmatic.
0: And you want to Uh, fix what's wrong.
1: uh, I guess I'm one of those born with a strong idealistic gene in my makeup, you know. So from young, even when I was just a school kid, uh, I remember in R.I., I was just very offended by one of my teachers who constantly picked on my classmate who came from humble families in Chinatown. And because of the family background, their enunciation of English was not perfect. And this particular teacher would always pick on them, you know. One day, I just couldn't take it, you know. So I stood up and told him that he shouldn't do that, you know. And I foolishly said, by the way, your own enunciation is not perfect. Uh-oh. <laughs> I thought you slap me, you know, but he didn't he didn't. So I, I guess I have this this streak from young of standing up for the underdog. And I was a very convicted socialist when I was young. So, so I've always wanted to help build a more equal and more just world.
0: It's very noble. And I know that you work no, passionately no, toward noble, that. not noble, not
1: My wife thinks I'm just a foolish old man. <laughs>
0: Well, the Tamiko reader talks about your mother's love of the arts and how pleased she was when you were appointed the founding chairman yeah. of the National Arts Council back in 1991. And I think in Singapore, much has improved with the quality of performances and world-class museums. And we both agree that we need the arts to make us whole. So is it time for us to have a graded component in the school system so that, People will truly value the arts because this is a place where if it's not graded, it's not important.
1: First, can I go back to my mother?
0: Sure, please.
1: My mother had three sons. Yeah? My middle brother was an engineer and uh, an entrepreneur. My youngest brother, who unfortunately passed away, was an architect and artist. My mother used to describe me to her friend as her stupid son. No. Yeah. Yes. Because to a Shanghainese, money is very important. And she used to tell me when I was young, That the most important, my vitamin, vitamin M, M for money. (laughs) So she was actually very disappointed. I had no interest in making money, you know. And when I decided to teach law rather than practice law, she was very disappointed. And when I accepted a job in a foreign service, she didn't like that. You know, most mothers would be very happy for the son. So one day when somebody asked my, my mother, what does your oldest son do? She said, he's a salesman. And this person asked my mother, what does he sell? She said, he sells Singapore and he gets no commission. <laughs> <laughs> so the only job my mother was very happy with was when I was asked to be the founding chairman of the Arts Council. Because she loved it. At
0: least finally. <laughs> finally.
1: Yeah. Actually, if you look back 30 years, I think we've come a long way, you know. We still have some way to go. But uh, I'm very encouraged when I go to concerts, exhibitions, to see so many young people, you know. So there's a big contrast between going to a concert in Singapore and going to one in London and New York. In London and New York, it's mostly old people. But in Singapore, it's mostly young people. So the future is bright. You know? It is, of course, true that we live in a very pragmatic society. And therefore, the artists and cultural workers were very disappointed. As you may remember, there was a public opinion poll and artists were considered non-essential workers. Yes. I don't defend them. I wrote an op-ed. In a straight time to say that
0: so many actors and artists so upset live without, by that, yeah, can't live
1: without, they're
0: without absolutely essential.
1: Goals. It is gradually becoming more and more an important part of our lives. We still have some ways to go. I think the trajectory is good,
0: but the school system is not a way to build that appreciation I would, I would of the arts. That
1: one of the things I did when the chairman of the arts council was that I managed to get a major grant. And I use this grant to give to all schools money to enable them financially to take every student in the school for free to a concert and to an exhibition. I want to expose them from their young, you know, to attending a live concert of music or ballet or you know, you know, and to go to an exhibition. And nowadays when you go to an art exhibition, whether at National Museum, ACM and so on, National Gallery, find many students, you know. So we're many art-loving teachers who would take their students to visit.
0: i like to hear your optimism. So do you have an easy fix on how we can encourage a stronger love of learning versus learning for the marks?
1: I think in this respect, Singapore is not yet at the top. We sometimes mistake that because we, our students excel in all these exams, you know, PISA and so on. Therefore, we are a well-educated country. I think there's a difference between an educated person and a cultured person. So I would say Singaporeans are educated but not sufficiently cultured. Singaporeans are good at passing exams, but very few of them read widely beyond the syllabus. So unlike the people in China and Japan who are voracious readers, Singaporeans are not yet voracious readers.
0: But you're optimistic yeah, that and, will happen. You know, if you look at the, look at the library
1: system you know, and the number of books that every Singaporean borrows, number of books that borrow that is not for exam. I think the trend is encouraging.
0: So I know you're the proud father of two sons, grandfather to two grandsons and a granddaughter. I wonder your outlook on gender equality and parity. And when your sons were growing up, did you talk about this at all? And what kind of conversation will you have with your granddaughter on this when she's older?
1: Uh, I've always been a feminist. Yeah. And I've always supported women in their quest for equality and justice and respect. You know? it's no use you telling your children if you don't walk the talk. So rather than tell your sons treat women equally and fairly, you should show by example that you treat your female colleagues, your beginning your wife and others with respect. You know, and so I'm very proud that I think I was the only ambassador to the UN who at one time had no men on my staff. Can you imagine that? I think most ambassadors in Singapore would say, no, no, I don't want all-female staff, you know. But I was very proud that every member of my delegation to the UN during this period of time were women, you know. And people used to be very envious of me, you know. They used to call them Tommy's (laughs) angels.
0: I love it. I don't think we could do that now. And
1: back home, I campaigned to abolish the quota for women in the medical school. I campaigned to abolish the preferential system for admission for boys to anywhere. I don't know if you know, there was a period of time. Yeah, There was a period of time when they gave additional points to men versus women. I mean, there was a period of time when Singapore was a male chauvinist country. This was during the time when the PAP had no women leaders and it had forgotten its own origin when PAP began as a pro-women party, enacted a women's charter and did many good things, you know. But in the 70s and 80s, the PP lost his way, you know, and did many anti-women things.
0: Pass the Power will continue after the break. But now back on course. So I know you are a prolific writer. You have three books last year, and your wife... And
1: hopefully went- three books this year.
0: Hopefully. And your wife told me that you read a book a day. No. And I wonder, is that true? Oh, no. no,
1: During the circuit breaker, but not impossible mm-hmm. on a regular, because I've work to do and I've got a lot of work-related reading, you know. But during the circuit breaker, it was a chance for me to really read voraciously.
0: Read, read voraciously yeah. and write voraciously <laughs> and edit yeah. and curate and yeah. produce three books. And see a
1: lot of my grandchildren. Oh, so, of so one of the silver lining was that I had a lot of time to spend with my grandchildren.
0: What should every 30-something read?
1: They should all belong to a a book club.
0: Best and worst advice you received in life? When the government
1: wanted to make me the first chairman of the National Arts Council and one of Singapore's leading businessmen heard about this, he invited me to lunch and told me, Tommy, don't be stupid. Art is frivolous. Oh, no. He really belonged to the old school. So I tried patiently to explain to this man whom I call Uncle that culture is very important, you know, art is not frivolous, and that this is such a wonderful opportunity to make a contribution. But he would never convince and he would not give money. So I'm glad I did not follow his advice. What's the best advice? It's not so much advice, but you know, one of the advantages of studying at RI wasn't the intellectual part, you know. I used to say that the years I spent in RI were so important to the formation of my In the first year, my form master was a Sikh, you know. Uh, Some of my best teachers were Malays, Indians, you know. If I had any racial prejudice in my system, they were knocked up. And the same about my classmates. you know. So we grew up in a very multiracial milieu. To the RI student race really doesn't matter, you know. It's how good you are, whether in sports or in academic work, you know. And there was a strong team spirit, you see. The other thing that's so important, I think one of the formative experiences in my life was spending many happy years in the scout movement, which I tried to encourage Toby to join, but he's not interested.
0: <laughs> Your grandson. Yeah,
1: I, t- I keep telling him it's very important. It's important because, first, it taught me to love nature, the great outdoors, you know. Spent so much of my youth camping, hiking around Singapore. Second, the importance of team that you look after your patrol, look after your troop. And as, as I became a, a patrol leader, then a troop leader, I learned to be a good leader. And then you learn very good values. that Even today, you know, I try to do what all good Boy Scouts do, do a good deed every day.
0: So tell me the three things you can't live without.
1: My wife, exercise, and work.
0: The most adventurous thing you've done in your life?
1: Uh, there used to be a foundation in America. I think it was started way back in the Eisenhower administration, which hosts foreign diplomats to all kinds of wonderful events. So one year, the foundation asked me, would you like to join a whitewater trip down the Colorado River for an old boy scout? This is just such a fantastic dream. Yeah, of course, my wife said, are you crazy? You want to go spend a week on the river? I said, yeah, yeah. So I said, you know, love, this is no experience money cannot buy, you know. So we spent a week rafting down the river in small teams. Each team had uh, about five or six of us. And every day, a different one of us would be the captain of the raft. Every evening we came out under the open sky, good, there was no rain, you know. And look at the beautiful night and the stars. And we learned also to get along with each other. We take turn to cook, take turn to do toilet duty. And then at the end of the trip, to hike nine vertical miles to the top of the Grand Canyon you know, and then spend two days together in in conference. I think that's a truly an unbelievable trip.
0: The trip sounds amazing. And then to culminate there at the top, of the Grand Canyon. And and, after you
1: spend a week on the river, you know, (laughs) basically half naked. I mean, nobody's any heirs, you know, and the group that they invited was very interesting. There were diplomats, there were corporate chiefs, there were government officials, there were, you know, and American civil society leaders. And and we just got along very well. And, you know, all barriers broken. That was, I think, one of the most adventurous trips I've ever done.
0: Sounds exciting. So can you tell us, before we wrap, a cause that's important to you?
1: So I'm the patron of many good causes. So let me just mention just a few of them. I'm the patron of the Nature Society because I think valuing nature, upholding sustainability, protecting the environment, are important, not just to Singapore, but to, to the world. So I take this job of mine being the patron of the Nature Society very seriously. I'm also the patron of several charities that work for disabled people. So I'm the patron of Very Special Arts Singapore, something founded actually in America. So we became initially a branch of this American NGO. The ambition was to bring art to the disabled and to bring disabled artists to the world. I'm also a patron of Guide Dogs. So what we do is to provide for free guide dogs to blind people who wish to have a guide dog. And I'm also patron of the Singapore Association for the Visually Handicapped. And also I'm patron of the Rainbow Center, which I don't know whether you know, Paige, it's a wonderful school, a really wonderful, inspiring school to see the dedicated teacher teaching children with multiple disabilities. Truly heartwarming.
0: Your favorite drink and who, dead or alive, would you like to share it with? I think my wife would
1: kill me if I don't <laughs> say water.
0: <laughs> so, I've loved having you. Are there any last words that you want to share to pass on the power, or anything you want to plug?
1: No, no, I, I want to say to especially young Singaporean, be positive, be optimistic, and do not be intimidated by adversity. So, based on my 83 years experience, I've encountered many, gone through many encounters, and adversity, you know, we always come out better.
0: Thank you, thank you for being here. I've loved talking with you. We could keep going on and on and on. Thank you, Paige. Appreciate it very much. Hey guys, your time is precious and I'm so pleased and grateful you've joined my Pass the Power podcast. I'm new at this, so please help me grow these conversations of hope by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and click the follow button on Spotify from Spotify, please share my podcast onto your Instagram stories. Don't forget to follow me on Insta at I am Paige Parker. Catch me on the next episode as we pass the power.